Hey guys, check it out. December 8th in New York City, the Soho Forum is hosting a debate on the resolution. While vaccine mandates are an infringement on freedom, some are justified due to their big payoff in lives saved. For the affirmative will be George Mason law professor Ela Soman, and for the negative, our friend Angela McArdle, chair of the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles County and declared candidate for national chair of the Libertarian Party. The uh, live debate will be at the Sheen Center. And of course, yes, they do have the vaccine restrictions at the Sheen Center, but they do not at Gene Epstein's apartment. And they're going to have a live viewing party at Gene's house. So people who oppose the mandates can watch the debate about the mandates. And so find out everything you need to know all about it at the SohoForum.org. That's this December the 8th in New York. For Pacifica Radio, December the 4th. 2021. I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm editorial director of Antiwar.com and author of the book, Enough Already. Time to end the war on terrorism. You can find my full interview archive and sign up for the podcast feed at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. Introducing today's guest, it's Gilbert Doctorow. He is a historian and Russia analyst and author of Memoirs of a Russianist and also Does Russia Have a Future? Welcome back to the show, Gilbert. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks uh, for inviting me. I really appreciate you uh, joining us on the show here. And um, so everybody, Gilbert lives in Brussels. So uh, I know you can see him from your front porch. Uh, <laughs> and and I know that you keep a very keen eye on Russian media as well as American media on all things American Cold War. I guess they're involved, too, at least on the receiving end. But tensions are heating up very far away there, east of what we used to call Eastern Europe, uh, over there in Belarus and Ukraine. And the New York Times version, of course, is that the Russians are preparing to invade and conquer at least part of Ukraine and that America has to do something about it. Of course, President Biden has said that our commitment to Ukraine is ironclad, although I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, I hope that you'll tell me that it's unnecessary because the Russians aren't coming anyway. But why don't you tell me what is going on over there? Well, there is a lot of talk on both sides, clearly. Um, the Russians have denied vehemently that they have any intentions to invade Ukraine. At the same time, it's undeniable that they have moved a lot of men and equipment to the Ukrainian border area. And so in in one respect, um, American warnings about the possibility of uh, Russian military action have some basis in fact. For their part, the Russians point out that the Ukrainian uh, army and its uh, equipment have moved it close to the Donbass area, which is the area of conflict of uh, the two seceding provinces of Ukraine, which have a substantial Russian-speaking uh, uh, population and which 
have claimed an independent position from Kiev. Now, the, the Russians speak of one half of the Ukrainian army now being deployed uh, just outside the, this, this area of contention in the southeastern part of Ukraine, which receives support uh, from, from Russia. Now, the, so the situation on the ground is complex. Both sides have called attention to the actions of the other. And the United States' position has been, as you mentioned at the outset, to, uh, to charge the Russians with potentially irresponsible behavior, to threaten the Russians with dire sanctions if they should dare to, uh, to pursue a, an intervention in, in Ukraine. The, the question is, what is the United States trying to achieve by these warnings? From the Russian perspective, they are trying to give the government in Kiev encouragement to do something irresponsible. And within the, that is to attack the, the rebel provinces in the expectation that if something goes awry and if the Russian uh, reaction to this, uh, to this uh, Ukrainian military move uh, turns out to be overwhelmingly strong, then the United States will provide what Joe Biden has said, this ironclad guarantee, and back them up with U.S. and NATO forces. Let's go back a little bit in history, not very far. Just go back to 2008. Uh, and then you had this very same Joe Biden, who was now the U.S. president and was then vice president. The man was very busy on the periphery of Russia. He was very busy traveling to Georgia, traveling to Kiev, giving instructions to the governments there on how to behave and giving them encouragement uh, that the United States would back them up in eventual membership in NATO. The, um, there is reason to believe that Joe Biden and people around him uh, gave Saakashvili, the then president of, of uh, Georgia, the belief that if he moved to recapture uh, rebel provinces that were, that were uh, where Russian peacekeepers were located, if he, the United States would stand by them. United, the United States then put military uh, forces in the eastern Mediterranean and potentially moving into the Black Sea uh, in support of these, this military uh, help. We came very close to a, to a war that is a U.S.-Russia confrontation, uh, direct confrontation in 2008. In point of fact, the United States did nothing. In point of fact, Turkey uh, refused to admit American naval vessels uh, through the Straits and into the Black Sea uh, in the belief that, they, that this would encourage a, a direct military strike against the, the Russian-backed forces uh, in, the, in the edge of, of Georgia. So back in 2008, the ironclad <laughs> guarantees that the same Mr. Biden and people around him uh, gave to the Georgian government turned out to be worthless. And the, the net result was uh, a devastating defeat for Georgia. It could be that Mr. Biden is, uh, has given such similar encouragement to Kiev to it, in the hope that they will do something um, against the Russians, whether it succeeds or not is almost irrelevant. Uh, 
the the end result from the U.S. side is that it, it would, whether the the coin is heads or tails, the U.S. wins. If the Russians smash uh, smash Kiev, move forces into Ukraine, then the United States can rally world opinion and NATO uh, in very harsh uh, economic, action, uh, diplomatic measures against Russia, which is fine with the United States. Uh, the loser in that event would be Kiev, but then who cares? The Kiev does not have by itself any value for the United States. Kiev, Kiev and Ukraine are just a platform for American containment forces directed against Russia. Hmm. So there, there's where we are. The United States is baiting uh, Russia by, by calling out uh, uh, its intentions to invade that Russia denies that it has. Look here, you and I both know that what you need is some Libertarian Institute things, like shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and stickers to put on the back of your truck and to give to your friends too that say Libertarian Institute on them so that everyone will know the origins of your oppositional defiant disorder and where they can listen to all the best podcasts. So here's what you do. Go to LibertasBella.com and look at all the great Libertarian Institute stuff they've got going there. Find the ad in the right-hand margin at LibertarianInstitute.org. LibertasBella.com You guys check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. Well, now, is there a sense on the Russian side that we know that game that the Americans are playing and always play, and they're not going to take the bait? Well, it was very difficult to set to, to understand the Russian position uh, until two days ago. Uh, the, the whole question of Russian attention to Ukraine, which has grown immensely in the last few weeks, centered around the potential for Ukrainian strike against against the, the, the rebel provinces of Donbass, but it also centered around an issue that Vladimir Putin raised a couple of months ago uh, and repeated a number of times in the period since, namely that the United States has been moving uh, equipment, the very advanced equipment, into Ukraine, has been conducting military exercises in Ukraine, and de facto has been seeking to achieve on Ukrainian territory what it would achieve if Ukraine were admitted to NATO. Going back several years, the, uh, the America's partners in NATO, particularly Germany, resisted American insistence on very quick um, association in NATO of Ukraine by Ukraine. So the American attempt to uh, to send forces that could be help, useful in containing Russia 
onto Ukraine via NATO membership was frustrated. The Russians were saying, going back, as I say, to a couple of months, that the U.S. has been de facto using Ukrainian territory as it would have done de jure if Ukraine became a member of NATO, which it cannot at present become. We didn't know exactly what uh, Vladimir Putin was talking about. He was a bit vague. He said that Russia had drawn red lines, which the U.S. and NATO should not cross in Ukraine. Presumably, it was what I just was describing. Right. And we've already known that for just, you know, to interject here real quick. That it's in the WikiLeaks that Lavrov told our current director of the CIA, William Sullivan, back mm-hmm. when, um, almost certain still in the Bush years, might have been early Obama years, when he was at the State Department, the WikiLeaks cable is titled, Nyet Means Nyet. And Lavrov is being very polite, but saying, listen, this whole bring Ukraine into NATO thing is a dead letter. And I hope you understand that we're serious about that. And he's being very diplomatic, but he's being very serious about it. And then uh, Vladimir Putin himself had told an Italian diplomat that, you know, we can be in Kiev in two weeks. And that's not the kind of thing that you're supposed to take lightly. And he's not the kind of guy who just bluffs very often. And by the way, let me bring in one more, uh, factoid here for the discussion for you to address, which is that at the worst part of the war, uh, or I don't know the very worst part of it, but I think right around there in in the first half of 2015, if I remember correctly, Gilbert, the uh, Donbass region, that is uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, these two eastern, mm-hmm. I guess, counties or provinces there in far eastern Ukraine, they held a plebiscite and voted to join the Russian Federation. And Putin told them no. And he's obviously sent deniable forces there, right? Special operations forces, but not full infantry divisions to help them resist Kiev this whole time. But he's not invaded and he refused their request to join, you know, join their federation. So uh, I wonder if you think that's changed at all or this really is all just the Russians trying to hold their fire in the face of American provocation. Well, my peers among the commentators Uh, and experts on Russia have in the last few weeks speculated uh, daily on what kind of military action uh, Moscow could take against Kiev decapitation. Would they divide the territory of Ukraine in two with the territory east of the Dnieper River? It's in the middle of Ukraine uh, and has Kiev Kiev situated on the Dnieper, going to to a Russia-friendly government and the rump, government, the rump remainder of Ukraine, west of, of the Dnieper, which is where the, the rabid nationalists are, in fact, is apparently part of Ukraine that was under the influence of, of uh, Austria before World War I. Anyway, that, be, that being left to the west because it wouldn't really count for much. These speculations have been very interesting, and they've been, uh, they've been multiplying day by day. However, what I want to point out is in the in November 30th, uh, and in the course of a uh, of a virtual presentation uh, to the business com- world business community called um, Russia Calling, the uh, Vladimir Putin clarified uh, in an unmistakable way uh, what what Russia uh, wants to do to protect itself 
against U.S. designs in Ukraine. As I said, the U.S. by stealth, by, according to Russian intelligence, has been, has been working to achieve what the U.S. would by right achieve if, if Ukraine became a member of NATO. Well, what is it that Vladimir Putin wants to do? It's not anything that my colleagues have been talking about. It is not about taking territory. He, as you pointed out correctly, in 2015, Putin uh, uh, did not accept the notion of Russian um, admitting these two rebel provinces uh, into, into the Russian Federation. And he did so in the full knowledge that um, whatever the, the vote was at the time, the population on the ground was not dependable in its loyalty to Russia, as Russia understands it. And he did not want to be drawn into a, the civil war of Ukraine and to face extreme, uh, uh, extremely painful sanctions from the West over, over this um, without serving any purpose, because it would not add to the wealth and, and to the strength of Russia. It would sap Russia's strength by exposing it to um, to a civil war, ongoing civil war to the, uh, of the, in, within the Ukraine. So what is Vladimir Putin telling us now? That Russia's interest in, in, in an American presence in Ukraine focuses on, on one issue only, and that is the threat of the United States installing uh, missile systems, and put, at the, which presently has done some similar to what it has done in Romania and Poland, that, un, that are um, dual purpose, which would be described upon delivery as being defensive, but in effect, if the switch of a computer uh, can, can be instantly turned into offensive weapons. The Ukraine and the, the, the far reaches of Ukraine approaching the Russian border reduce dramatically the, um, the distance between potential American missiles and Moscow by several hundred kilometers. And so Russia pays particular attention to what the United States could or would like to do by way of installing supposedly defensive missiles in Ukraine, which actually would have the effect of reducing, as he said in his speech uh, two days ago, would reduce the flight time to uh, of, of um, the warning time of incoming missiles of strategic importance directed against the Russian capital to five to seven minutes. Now, that is totally unacceptable for the Russians. It is a vital threat to their existential threat. And Putin uh, stated explicitly how Russia intends to react if the United States does this by stealth or otherwise. Mm -hmm. the, uh, and here we revert to what he said in the State of the Nation address a couple of years ago when he was rolling out before the Russian and global public the latest weapon systems, uh, state-of-the-art systems that Russia had developed and was about to, to um, produce in a serial manner and to, to implement in its um, armed forces around the world. A, among these, these new armaments are hypersonic missiles, which are 
capable of uh, being positioned on surface vessels, uh, frigates, or, or commercial freighters uh, in the size of ordinary shipping containers, or which can be carried on newly designed and newly constructed Russian submarines. The explicit threat that Putin made when he described these new systems is that the United is that Russia could turn the oceans <laughs> into from a source of safety, which which the United States had enjoyed for since it's since it became a a, a, a nation state in the in the 18th century, to turn the, the oceans around the United States from a source of safety to a source of dire threat. The Russians could station these various vessels uh, at a distance of 200 miles as out in international waters, and could reach Washington or any other strategic uh, point uh, for attack within five to seven minutes. Well, there you have it. We have uh, a, a revisiting of the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. when just such a threat uh, brought the world a threat of, uh, of Russian installation of missiles close to the U.S. mainland, uh, brought the world close to a nuclear, a nuclear Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Uh, this threat in the speech that he made, as uh, Putin made two days ago, has only been partially reported by our major media. And it's quite striking. Uh, the Financial Times, in an article yesterday, describing this, this event that Russia calling and Putin's mention of, um, of new weapon systems, did not connect this with the situation in Ukraine. Not at all. It's just so unforgivable. It's like Pravda. It really is the Western media and the way they approach this subject. Someone was joking the other day on the internet about how uh, the headlines will read, Russian jets buzz American ships in the Black Sea right off their coast. <laughs> you know, but uh, that's just the way they frame it always. And, and to such a degree that the truth is completely lost. So... You know, the problem here is, Gilbert, you're so soft-spoken, but you are talking about a serious ratcheting up of the threat of a nuclear war where, and look, I think everyone listening to this show knows that my bias is on all of these things, that America is the world empire. America's been expanding not just in the Middle East and in Eastern Asia, but throughout Eastern Europe, and as you're describing, right up to Russia's borders and threatening to put these, you know, first of all, defensive, quote unquote, missiles ringing Russia is an offensive threat itself. It's, you know, bringing armor to a fist fight, increasing the ability to shoot down a retaliatory strike from Russia is, in a sense, an offensive capability anyway. But then, as you're saying, and very importantly, the missile launchers are dual use and you can fit a Tomahawk missile in one of those or another nuclear capable cruise missile in those same missile launchers. And so... Here, the Americans truly are, it seems, just ratcheting up all of these tensions unnecessarily. But I know that if you and I somehow could get some bureaucrat drunk at a bar in Georgetown outside Washington, D.C., they would say to us that this guy Putin is really dangerous, Gilbert. And that's why we have to do this. 
don't you know what a psychopath he is and what an aggressive threat he is? We have to contain him like he's Joe Stalin or at least Khrushchev or Andropov or something. So what do you say to that? Well, I say that there's the really sad, almost tragic thing is that the best we could hope for is this discussion in a bar of, uh, uh, off of Capitol Hill. There is no uh, forum. Uh, with, you um, got that right. There's no forum in the States for public discussion of these existential threats, which we are creating with our own two hands. Right. And uh, what you have is this, this issue with Russia doesn't exist by itself. By further extension, by un, uh, in, unbelievable hubris, the United States has managed to bring Russia and China into what is very close to a full alliance. The, it, it is incredible to, to imagine, but that is what we have done. And um, these issues are kept separate, by the way. They even kept separate by people who should know better, by people who are, Scott, not very different in their thinking about the fundamentals from yourself and, and me. The, 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 what the United States is doing by its containment policy directed both against Russia and China should be a matter of discussion with all the experts on both countries in the United States. Russia is, is, an, is absolutely, has no supporters in the States. Uh, no one will, will uh, come and talk about it because we know everything we need to know. China is more dis discussable, more disputable, because until very recently, you had a lot of friends of, of China among the American elites, business elites and other elites. America always had, uh, going back 20, 30 years, had a big soft spot in its heart for China. It had no soft spot ever for Russia. So it is rather sad that we among ourselves, we so-called dissidents on American policy on, on Russia, are unable to find talking partners among our colleagues who are experts in the States on China because the issues are the same. The U.S. scenario, the rollout of containment against China is following precisely one-to-one -one mm -hmm. the U.S. scenarios on, on, on creating a new Cold War against, against Russia. Now, Gilbert, um, you may be familiar with Colonel Douglas McGregor, um, mm. kind of a crusty old conservative anti-war colonel. Mm -hmm. And his position on Russia is that we should be friends with them. And his position on China is that they're an economic competitor at worst. And America doesn't really have any enemies in the world. And we could have a much more non-interventionist foreign policy. And this is the guy who wrote the war plan for fighting Russia in Eastern Europe. No joke. That's his job. And still, he's saying that, in fact, he wrote before, I think, we won't have a nuclear war there because the Russians won't use nukes in Ukraine no matter what. I mean, it could escalate to general war with us, but they won't use nukes in Ukraine because the prevailing winds, but still could be a hell of a fight there that America's absolutely not prepared for. And he has a new piece in the American Conservative magazine where he says, essentially, Joe Biden and his people, they don't understand deterrence. So they're being aggressive in the Pacific. And I don't want to change the subject to China here, but mm -hmm. they're mentioned as well. But and they're being aggressive in Ukraine. And it's all about deterrence, but it's really not deterrence. It's more like a provocation. And he says 
you know, we could have a Pearl Harbor type situation where they strike first, but because again, we maneuver them into firing the first shot and making them feel like they have no choice. Well, if you speak about firing, and this could kill us all, and by all, I mean all. Well, we have we have seventy years experience dealing with the Russians, and the Russians have, in general, been very um, cautious. Uh, Even even today, what we see, by and large, is Russia reaction, uh, not Russia provocation. The Chinese question is a different matter. We really don't know whether the Chinese are going to be as calm and as laid back as the Russians have been. Certainly the, the Chinese are much less willing to take to take a strike in this and turn the other cheek than the Russians have done. Mm. Um, with, if you want to look for the Pearl Harbor moment, I'd say it's much more likely to come out of the confrontation with China than out of the confrontation with Russia. Well, as you say, though, if they start installing these supposedly defensive missiles in Ukraine and treating them like a full NATO ally, then Mm -hmm. they just might decide to go in there and destroy those missiles and take whatever consequences come from that. And that could be the start of a real war. Well, uh, judging by by Putin's latest remarks, again, uh, the, the, the... the insight here is that the Russians do not intend a strike against Kiev, decapitation, whatever. The Russians intend instead to wave flags <laughs> at Washington at 200 miles off and say, look, guys, you want it? You're going to get it. Right. And then, yeah, I guess it remains to be seen whether that's effective. And again, not to change the subject of China, but that's what's happening in the White House, right, is the hawks are telling Biden If we back down at all in Ukraine, the Chinese will invade Taiwan. You can't show weakness because of the domino theories and the spiral policy and all this stuff they studied at the John F. Kennedy School of supposedly understanding this stuff. Well, by our own action, these two questions are totally linked, which is why I say that any public discussion should, should a respectable forum be opened at a place, let's, let's, let's dare to say it, like the, the, uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard, if they ever were to open their doors to something resembling a round table, I don't dare, dare say debate because we, we, we're afraid of debates and losing them, but if they were to open their doors to a uh, discussion of, of, of the existential threats facing the United States today, they would have to discuss two, two countries at once because they're virtual allies. Russia and China. And the remark that you made a minute ago about um, the the Chinese taking advantage of a Russian showdown in Ukraine is entirely plausible. Um, I I think that the, the moment of truth will come when the Russians and the Chinese agree publicly or quietly, however, that an attack on one is an attack on both. And there... This will be very late, be very late for the for the United States to take any remedial action. All right, you guys, that is Gilbert Doctorow, Russia analyst and author of Memoirs of a Russianist. Thank you so much for your time again on the show, Gilbert. Thanks for having me. All right, you guys, and that has been Anti-War Radio for this morning. 
Thanks very much for listening. I'm your host, Scott Horton. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,600 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Scott Horton Show. I'm here every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.